You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. So why do seagulls live near the sea? Because if they live near the bay, they'd be bagels. Welcome to Wings and Things, where you'll find real answers to real questions about everything you want to know about pet birds. Care, feeding, bird products, travel, and more. Everything to make your frequent flyer a happy camper. From parrots to parakeets, cockatiels to cockatoos, you'll have a bird's eye view of everything there is to know about your fun, feathered friends. So, spread your wings and get ready to fly on Wings and Things. Welcome to Wings and Things on Pet Life Radio. We're your hosts, Robin Chiwokas from the Leather Elves. And Barbara Heidenreich from Good Bird Inc. Today's topic is common parrot myths and misconceptions. We'll be right back after these messages. Sitting on a branch overlooking the parking lot, the pigeons watched as a Mercedes pulled in below them. What do you think, one bird said to the other. Should we put a deposit on that car? Stay perched. Wings and Things will be soaring back right after these messages. Spills, pet messes, and dirt are unavoidable, but the stains and odors they cause are not. Spot Shot Instant Carpet Stain and Odor Eliminators, non-toxic, environmentally friendly, and biodegradable formula, safely and permanently eliminates the toughest carpet spills and stains, even pet messes. Approved by the Carpet and Rug Institute, SpotShot neutralizes odors with powerful dual odor eliminators and utilizes an anti-resoiling agent to protect carpets from future stains. SpotShot products can be found at Walmart, Petco, Lowe's, and your local grocery retailer. For more information, visit SpotShot.com. Get $5 off the admission for the hit movie, Marley and Me. Just go to PetLifeRadio.com and click on the Marley and Me banner for details. Coast to coast and around the world, it's All Behave with Arden Moore. Find out why cats and dogs do the things they do. And get the latest buzz from wagging tongues and tails in Rin Tin Tinseltown. From famous pet experts and best-selling authors to television and movie stars, you'll get great tail-wagging pet tips and have a fur-flying fun time. All behave with America's pet edutainer, Arden Moore, every week on demand. This is the place for a special paparazzi treat, only on PetLifeRadio.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. A Frenchman walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder. The bartender asks, where did you get that thing? The parrot replies, in France. There are millions of them. Don't have a canary. Wings and Things is back. Welcome back to Wings and Things on Pet Life Radio. Today's topic is common parrot myths and misconceptions. And today's challenge is for Barb to say that five times fast. Myths and misconceptions. I think I've done okay so far. <laughs> it's only once. We're, oh. we're, we'll, we'll see as the show goes on. Um, the first thing I need to do today is a little bit of a disclaimer. As far as enrichment's concerned, there are so many myths out there and so many different ideas that if there's something that you know we discuss or that you discuss with a fellow parrot owner and you're still not comfortable with it, you probably would want to take that idea to your avian veterinarian and just you know see what they have to say, get their opinion. Um, and if they don't have an opinion on it, then and maybe it's something you want to think a little bit about. Yeah. Yeah, definitely have to do your your research on some of those things. Too. That's right. It's a it's a matter of you know not taking just one source. It's there are so many different opinions out there, and you know so many people. Oh no no, it's absolutely this or it's absolutely that. I I always get a little nervous about the absolutely. Yeah, and you know one of the things that comes to mind for me is how do these myths get started in the first place? Because it's it's. I don't know. I, I think some people kind of they'll put logic to an experience they had, and they come up with their their ah, this is what happened. And then if you looked at the science or the facts, it may not be exactly like that. I think it's a matter of needing to define. It goes back to, you know, when the, the ancient peoples used to do to make up myths to talk about the sun or the moon. And, and it goes back to that where people need to find an explanation when something happens to their to their pet. 
And so, you know, people may have a bad experience, a, a parrot gets sick or, or, you know, perhaps dies, and they, they attribute it to there was X in the cage. And when they go to the veterinarian, that's what they report because that's what they saw. And it may be something else or it may be something completely unrelated, but the veterinarian then attributes it to that because that's what was reported by the owner. Yeah, I can I can see where that's happened in a lot of cases. I mean, certainly one that I see from my own personal experience as a myth that I could I could probably guess as to why it happened is this notion of height dominance. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people hear or believe that if a bird is perched higher than your heart, I think, or your head, that the bird thinks it's dominant to you. And this one, I remember, really struck me as so odd when I first heard it, because again, having coming, having come from a community where we were free-flying parrots outside for education shows and zoos, birds were higher than our heads all the time. And right. so it never even occurred to me that that you know, a bird over my head was a problem. And then I read this and I was like, what? I don't get it. <laughs> and, and when you look at it, that, that comes up all the time. I had a woman tell me she was really excited about creating a new perch and she had this this coat stand that would work perfectly if she sanded it down. It was safe wood, and but she was afraid to use it because it was taller than her. Mm. And, and I did try to assure her that, that that's really not an issue. Um, yeah, I mean, I think if you've got a, a non-flighted bird that doesn't know how to fly to you and you're trying to ask him to step up on your hands, sometimes if they're higher than you, it's I don't think it's that um, they're dominant. I think a lot of times you're it's an uncomfortable position for you or the bird would be having, would, would have to step down to get to your hand, was not, which is not very comfortable for the bird. So sometimes getting on a chair or something like that makes that process a little easier. And, and I think height dominance also, the, the whole issue goes back to their natural behavior. When you think about where these birds in the wild live the majority of their lives, most of them are, are treetop dwellers or in the upper levels of the canopy. And, and it's not about dominance. It's not about one species is more dominant than another or one flock member is more dominant than another. It's just where they exist. Yeah, and I've heard from um, several field biologists that there's no documentation that it actually exists out in the wild. And, and, it, and when you think about it, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. If you're um, sitting highest in the tree in the open portion, you're the most vulnerable, right. um, which wouldn't necessarily make you you know, the most dominant one. And my understanding of dominance in, in field biology and biology in general is that the way it's defined by them is it's a dominant animal is the one that gets the resources first. So they'd be the one that maybe gets access to food or mates first, things like that. It doesn't really have to do with um, a height thing or that meaning that they have power over you somehow. It's not necessarily positioning, I think, is part of it. It's yeah. physical positioning. Yeah. Well, I have this theory. I don't really know for sure if this is true or not, but it's my theory about how I think height dominance may have come to be the myth that it is. You mm -hmm. know, you're saying how people need explanations for what occurs in their in their experience with their birds. And unfortunately, for many years in the companion parrot world, there's been information out there that, that encourages people to force birds to get on their hands. They say they must obey the step-up command, which is very different from what I grew up learning, free-flying birds. Our, our goal is always to teach a bird to voluntarily come to you. It's not about force. And when you've got a bird, say, for example, you've got a clipped bird that ends up um, perching like on your curtain rod or something like that because many parrots do prefer to sit on the highest perch they can find. So now that bird's sitting up there and you want to ask him to step onto your hand, but his history of getting on your hand is based on coercion and, and force. And here he's got the choice of let's sit on the nice high perch, which is really comfy and I really like or get on your hand, which isn't much fun because you forced me onto it. Right. So it's really not a matter of the animal being dominant, and that's why he's not getting on you, but really about what really offers him the best consequences. Mm -hmm. And sitting up high on the perch is a lot more positively reinforcing to him than stepping on your hand that, that is pushing into his chest or trying to peel his toes off. And again, I go back to my experience with free-flighted birds in bird shows. You know, these birds are sitting up in trees way above our heads, and there's no way they're coming down to us because we dominated them. <laughs> right, and, and I think, too, it, it speaks to the fact that a lot of times when a, a bird is on a very high perch, there, for you to get them down, if you were to climb up towards them or, you know, reach up towards the high curtain rod, you're not in a very stable position. And so now you're kind of leaning into that bird. You're, you're again, it, it, 
it may appear to that bird to be that coercion or that forcing the step up. Well, and quite frankly, with a flighted bird, if they didn't like it, they'd just fly away. So, you know, we never even resort to that kind of stuff. Um, You know, it's really about focusing on teaching a bird that coming down to you has value, not that, you know, something bad's going to happen if you don't come down to me right away. So I, you know, I don't know if that's how the height dominance uh, story came to be. But I could see where someone in that scenario may come to that conclusion Mm -hmm. um, to explain that if they didn't have information about positive reinforcement training and how it works. So, um, Another one for me that I always find really um, uh, contradictory to my experience with parrots is the idea that you need to be the flock leader. That, again, sort of implies sort of this dominance and you're in charge and what you say goes. And for me, the relationship with my parrots and um, the parrots I've had the pleasure to work with over the years is not about control. It's really about if they make a choice that is towards what I would like them to do, something good's going to happen. But they always have the choice not to participate as well. Right. And I think that the whole flock leader piece leads to dominance by human beings Mm -hmm. i I think that's something that comes about with people that say well i have to be in charge i have to be the flock leader in my house well that just what that says to me is that that's someone who is going to force animals to do things who's going to force that bird to do things rather than work on a, a mutually beneficial kind of system yeah and you know and sometimes people have this misconception too that positive reinforcement means that everything's out of control and chaotic and that your bird is, you know, wrecking havoc in your house. And, and that's not really, it doesn't have to be that way. It just, it's just about reinforcing what you want so that they choose to do the things that you would prefer them to do. Like, you know, setting up perches in your house that are the places where you would like your bird to be and making them great places to hang out instead of maybe on your brand new coffee table. Right. And, and, you know, again, being the flock leader doesn't mean you're allowing your bird free reign to do whatever they want whenever they want to do it you're creating those situations you're allowing those choices but you are shaping those choices in some way yeah so again you know to me it's about a partnership with your bird it's not about me being the leader i'm not i'm i'm just working cooperatively with him to or her to show that bird that there's great consequences when you play you know with this over here instead of this over there i think honestly it comes down to two that you've kind of already won. In most cases, you, most people's birds do have to go in cages at some time. And so you've got free reign of your home at all times. You can come and go as you please. Your, your bird has some choice in that matter, but there's no real need to be the flock leader, to be in charge. And hopefully people don't feel that way um, in their relationships. Yeah, it always bothers me when somebody says, you know, I have to show the bird who's boss or don't let him get away with anything. Those to me are always red flags that, ooh, you know, there's an opportunity there to help somebody learn a little bit more about positive reinforcement because if you're taking that approach to your parrot, you're probably... Um, using some coercive tactics and creating fear responses and aggressive behavior, which, again, is completely opposite to what you want to do if you want to have a great relationship with your bird. So um, speaking of relationships, I've heard this one before, that if you get a mirror... Your bird isn't gonna like you. Oh, it's gonna not. bond they're to their so image. Not. They're gonna. There's that other bird in the cage. I've heard it a million times. Now, again, I'm not saying that there aren't some birds that become a little obsessive with mirrors. That definitely happens. We see some that regurgitate their little hearts content sure. to their image. Um, but, but I can say um, a mirror, from um, my personal experience with my own cockatiel, has been a little bit of a godsend mm-hmm. because banana pudding, my little yellow cockatiel, really uh, is very attention-oriented, loves, loves interaction with, with humans, um, and to the point where... It was taking a lot of effort on my part to um, make sure he was well reinforced for being in other places so that he wasn't constantly glued to me or glued, you know, to, unfortunately, he likes to hop on my computer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So so rather than, you know, punish him for that, I tried to find ways to make other places to be reinforcing. And really just on a whim, um, because I thought it was cute, I bought a mirror that you can record sounds and it has a motion detector. So um, So it's auditory and visual. So when when a puddin moves, it it talks back to him because I recorded his own voice <laughs> into well, that's it. That's fun, and and there's a little bark from Waylon at the end too. But, you know, but anyway, but what what ended up happening is I actually got a little more balance in in life because Puddin really enjoys that mirror or appears to, um, spends a lot of time at that. But but there's also a balance. So 
he's comfortable enough hanging out at the mirror, but if there's an opportunity, if I give him the opportunity to come out and hang out with me, he also looks for, you know, he, he'll hop right on my hand and want to interact as well. So um, it actually took a little bit of that drive off of, oh my gosh, where are you, where are you, where are you? He's like, oh, okay, well, I got my mirror, I'm doing all right for now. Oh, there you are, well, let's interact with you now. And I think along those same lines, Barbara, is the, the auditory piece, that if you play um, same species vocalizations for your birds, they won't ever learn to talk. That comes up quite often, and and I have found that that's not the case either. You know, they will make their same species noises, but they also they will learn to talk as well. It's a training, it's a training issue. Yeah, we might have to do a podcast on training to talk. Um, on, you know, and, and all the elements that go in, into that because there's a lot of different things about that that are pretty interesting. So we might have to save that one. Alrighty, I like that one. Coming to a theater near you. Yes. Yeah. How about how about Scarlet Macaws or Nippy? Oh, they are. They definitely are. You know, <laughs> I hear that one a lot. Or um, Amazons are hormonal. Mm-hmm. What are some other ones that we hear? Cakes are always silly. Yeah, I have a cake. There are some serious moments. I'm telling you, it's, it's true. So. <laughs> serious thinking moments. You know, while I will say that you know there are certain trends you see um, with different species, there's some that I think um, I, I don't buy into. Um, like the scarlet macaws are nippy, and and people have read my book, The Parrot Problem Solver. Have seen this story already, but I w- I got to work with a flock of twelve scarlet macaws that came from um, different parents. And we finished off the the hand feeding for those birds. This was at a zoological facility. And so I was very fortunate to get to work with these birds when they were quite, quite young. And so they didn't have a lot of history behind them. And um, as far as, you know, learning aggressive behavior towards hands or not. And I worked with them just like I would with any other parrot. And I've worked, I had worked with other scarlet macaws before that, but it was a unique opportunity to have 12 Mm. at once. And I will tell you, not one of those birds was nippy right it really it was really about what you do with your training strategies that influence whether that bird was going to start mouthing on you or not you Mm -hmm. know and so um so that one always struck me and then i always think about the amazon one um when teaching a seminar in sweden i remember walking into the room and there were probably like eight amazons in the room and my first thought which was really you know i i think oh i can't believe i had this thought i was like "Uh oh lots of amazons i'm gonna have to be careful and i tell you those amazons were awesome and you do you get pulled into those myths you get Mm -hmm. you know there are things that we hear over and over again and whether you know deep down inside that that may just be a training issue it may be they need more enrichment you still that's your gut reaction that's that that Uh Mm uh-oh, you know, and you do have to be careful with that and and not make those kind of generalizations. Well, and I think really what made the difference with those Amazons is um, pretty much everyone that was there was a client of an avian veterinarian in Sweden um, who is very... uh, very well-versed in positive reinforcement training, and she shares that with her clients. And so a lot of these folks already came in with a lot of good experience under their belt, and and it reflected in the behavior of their birds. So it it was... Again, a nice reminder that it's you know we tend to put these labels on birds that and and make our predictions come true when it doesn't have to be that way. Right, and yeah. and that we can work on those kind of behaviors. Yep. Well, and I kind of mentioned this one before that um, the whole notion about birds obeying the step up command uh, for me that's a big one. I've I really think that that has been a huge problem for the companion parrot community. Again, coming from the free flight world, I was when I was working with parrots in zoos, and, and I still do, but back in the beginning, we just rarely got bit. And when I started working with the companion parrot community, I was shocked at how many birds had biting behaviors in their repertoire. And I had to do a kind of long, hard thought process on, on it. What was going on here? What's different between what's going on in that world versus that world? And I really think it was this information being fed over and over again that your bird has to obey the step-up command. And it's not that you don't want your bird to step up. But I think it's the notion of obey and command. Mm -hmm. Those two words imply your bird's going to do it whether he wants to or not. I think those go back to the the whole discussion of flock leader again. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, you're not offering that choice. You're expecting a behavior. You've created a situation in your head. This is what having a companion parrot needs to be all about. And we, you know, you need to get that, that obey piece out of them. Yeah. And, and that's always been a troublesome word for me. You know, I prefer you know, saying a request or, you know, I'm going to cue, cue my bird for something if, as opposed to a command. Um, it should be taken out of the parrot 
you know, lingo, like just yeah. like the marriage ceremony to love, honor, and obey. <laughs> obey should not be in either one of those, those oh. things. Um, yeah, I'm not so fond of that word myself. <laughs> I have a hard time with obey. It's just, Are you the flock leader? Is that what you're telling me? It's an authority thing. <laughs> Are you showing some height dominance here? You are taller than me. <laughs> no, but I think, unfortunately, some of the fallout um, that has happened when people force their birds to step up on their hand is that they learn aggressive behavior towards hands to get people to stop. And so you get these parrots that have learned biting behaviors, which, again, never has to be if you don't force your bird and teach it instead that through, you know, small approximations and positive reinforcement to get on the hand. And also we see a lot of fear responses. So to me, um, again, I'm always like blown away at how many birds or parrots are afraid of hands. And I always mm-hmm. say, do you think they come out of the egg with an innate fear of hands? <laughs> yeah, hand is not a scary thing. It shouldn't be. Yeah, it's, so it's really about their learning experience with hands. So hands have been chasing them around, coercing, coercion, I can't say it. Coercing. Coercing them, thank you. See, um, I knew we'd catch her. It wasn't it's a misconception. <laughs> it was coercing. That's the trouble word tonight. Good Lord. So anyway, but but again, it, it, those are the problems that are often the result of force and um, doesn't have to be. It's right. just a matter of going back to your positive reinforcement stuff. Um, what you also hear, this ties in again with all that controlling thing that there's, myth, there's a myth out there, in my opinion. Um, well, people say that you should never let your bird enter or exit his cage on his own only only when you say and you know he has to step up on your hand to go in and out and again to me that was another odd one because um when you're a positive reinforcement trainer you find yourself getting creative you don't you don't go it has to be this way you go hmm well he's not willing to do that maybe i can find another way and and why put your hand into the cage or expect him to come out only on the hand if that's a trouble spot for you. Right. You yeah. know, if, if you can you can alleviate that and create a situation where that behavior is occurring, you, all, what you want is him out of the cage. That's the point of, of what, you know, what you're looking for, the behavior you're looking for. Why does, why does that step up have to go into it? Why does you allowing him in or out have to come into that whole scenario? Well, and step up too for these birds that have had these bad experiences with hands is a really difficult behavior. And we talk a lot about targeting, and targeting is usually an easy one to get on your bird pretty quickly. And you can just use a target to teach your bird to follow the target to come out of the cage and follow the target to go back into the cage. Mm -hmm. And it's a different way of getting them in and out that's perfectly fine and acceptable. There's no need for them to have to step up onto your hand. And and I think the other part of that point that you're trying to make is that that they can come and go as they please. It doesn't have to be even with a target or or anything. It's it's on their own. It's their own choice to enter or exit the cage. Well, and I think that's where people they'll start to get worried. Like, oh my God, I don't have control. How am I getting it back in the cage? And and that again, like I said, positive reinforcement trainers get creative here. You know, we might go, oh, okay. Well, then I'm going to save your favorite treat. And worst case scenario, I'm going to drop it in the bowl, and mm-hmm. hopefully you'll climb down in there and get it. Of course, you'd still want to get that behavior of going back in your cage on cue without having to drop the food first. But if you were in a in a tight, you know, situation where you just weren't getting anywhere, you might resort to that to get sure. that behavior. But again, you're making it the bird's choice to participate. You're not saying, "Okay, I'm shoving you in there, whether you like it or not." <laughs> right. Well, let's see. Another thing I, I thought I'd mention is um, one of the cool things about about animal training is that it all goes back to the science called behavior analysis. And I really appreciate that because even though I didn't know about all the science when I first started training, having, having learned about it now, um, I love that it means there's, there's no secrets, if that makes sense. Absolutely. We haven't reinvented the wheel. We're going back to the basic information. Yeah. So you'll, you know, you'll see all these things on the internet where it's, ooh, it's the secret of animal training. And it's like, but there are no secrets. <laughs> it's already out there. It's been out there for a hundred years. So it, it may be reworded. It may be, you know, presented a little bit differently, yeah. but it still comes, if you're practicing good positive reinforcement training, it's going back to the basics. It is. And that's why I really recommend that people get familiar with the science because what you'll start to see is when you get bombarded with, um, you know, 
all the sales pitches of new techniques or new discovery or the secrets and all that kind of stuff, you can um, evaluate it with a knowledge base. Like you can, when you see something that's been given a new name, you can say, oh no, you know what, that's flooding and I don't really want to use that technique. Mm -hmm. Or, hey, that's a good positive reinforcement method and I'm happy to use that. They may be calling it a different name, but I, I understand it's positive reinforcement, so that's okay. Or, you know, again, it's that whole thing of, of educating yourself so that you're not tricked, so right, to speak, tricked right. into something it, that isn't, isn't, you know, legitimate or whatever. Knowing what you're looking for. I mean, I, I think it goes back to being a good consumer. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have some idea, you know you need more information, but you should make sure that it's based in, in the science of, of positive reinforcement training. Yeah, and you don't have to, you know like totally bury yourself in it but you know there's just a few things to get familiar with what's positive reinforcement what's negative reinforcement um you know i heard somebody trying to describe intermittent reinforcement and it wasn't quite on the money so you know things like that you know if you have a knowledge of it you can you can look at that and go oh you know that's that's not quite right so you know and you find your own comfort level too i think Mm -hmm. what works for you you know if the terminology isn't working for you at least know it and know what what it refers to and then you know you know what you're doing you know the the behavior that you're trying to use yourself right um, yeah you know your tools and your right. tool bag you're not you're you're familiar with them so all right well you know I'm thinking we might want to take a break right now sounds like a plan and we'll come back and we'll talk about some of the myths that are often uh, discussed when it comes to enrichment Enri- items lots of enrichment myths oh I know and we could go on and on about the ones in animal training and so we might have to do a whole nother show on this we'll see all right <laughs> all right well we'll be right back after these messages Sitting on a branch overlooking the parking lot, the pigeons watched as a Mercedes pulled in below them. What do you think, one bird said to the other. Should we put a deposit on that car? Stay perched. Wings and things will be soaring back right after these messages. Welcome to Pet Planet. Here's a copy of Pet Planet Magazine, Florida's most informative and fun pet resource magazine. It features heartwarming stories and informative articles from local and national pet experts. Excellent. Pet Planet Magazine offers Operation Planet Rescue, helping rescued pets find new homes. And it's available at 500 locations in South and Central Florida and 24-7 on the Internet at PetPlanetMagazine.com. If you're out and about with your pet, you may be featured in Paparazzi, candid pictures of you and your pet. For up-to-date pet-friendly events, activities, and pet-related services and products, Pet Planet Magazine is your final destination. I shall take this magazine home with me. Back to your home planet? No, to my condo in Boca. Pet Planet Magazine. Check them out at www.petplanetmagazine.com or 352-394-8578. It's out of this world. Got questions about your hound's health? Need the facts on Fido's fitness or food? You want to unleash your pup's potential? Well, you've come to the right place with Win With Dogs. Here, we learn how easy it is to naturally improve the lives of our furry friends. So sit, stay, and get ready to win with dogs. With me, Raquel Wynn. Exercise, nutrition, interaction, and love make for one healthy, happy hound. Give yourself the gift of knowledge on demand every week right here at Pet Life Radio with me, Raquel Wynn, and Win with Dogs. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. A Frenchman walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder. The bartender asks, where did you get that thing? The parrot replies, in France. There are millions of them. Don't have a canary. Wings and Things is back. Welcome back to Wings and Things with your hosts, Barbara Heidenreich and Robin Chiwokas on Pet Life Radio. So we're back and we're going to talk about enrichment myths. These are things that come up. You know, again, I think if I had a nickel for every time these have come up in my workshops, I wouldn't have to do this anymore. Not that I don't love doing this, but I wouldn't have to do this anymore. Um, the first biggie for me is paper towel rolls are toxic. Well, aren't they? No. I, I You know, th- this honestly comes up every single time I do a workshop because I talk about foraging and, and creating things out of recyclables. And pe- somebody raises their hand and says, you know, you can't use paper towel <laughs> rolls. 
because they're toxic. And some of the things, you know, they have a high lead content. They have the glue is, is toxic. And what I usually tell people is if you gave them a bucket of glue, it would be bad. Um, but the amount that you find on a paper towel roll is not enough. And so I, I had said this several times with some serious authority and then said, you know, maybe I'll go talk to some avian vets about this. So when I was at AAV, I did discuss this with several avian vets. And I said, you know, what, what's your feeling on paper towel rolls? Are, are they toxic? Are they dangerous? And the answer was no. Everything in... in um, Moderation. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> there was a blank look on my face because this is radio and you can't tell that. But um, everything in moderation. And it, it's fine to give them... I wouldn't give them a paper towel roll every single day. But they do make great parts of foraging toys yeah so well you know and we actually see a lot of cardboard and enrichment items these days we do and and you know you just need to be careful if there's a if there's a picture on the outside that you can rip off that layer do it i mean if that makes you more comfortable go for it but is it absolutely necessary no they're not ingesting these things you know i just put one in nikki's um cage with a paper towel roll and and some other stuff attached to it and i strung it all up on leather and in a matter of hours, it was gone. And I thought, <gasps> he ate it all. And then I said, but that's not a big deal. But it was still like in, you know, even though I knew that it was okay, it was still a little bit scary until I looked on the bottom of the cage through the grate and there was the whole paper towel roll in shredded pieces. Yeah. And, you know, again, this is totally based just on my personal experience. And I am sure there are cases where parrots ingest things that they're not supposed to. But but I remember, you know, one time we had a parrot that got a hold of like um, the clip you see at the end of a dog leash, mm -hmm. and um, and it completely tore it apart. And the spring was gone. This was a green winged macaw, big bird. Yago was his name. And um, hi, Yago, out there at at Disney nowadays. <laughs> but anyway, you know, we we like searched everywhere for every bit and piece of that, thinking that he might have swallowed it. And I, I don't recall, it was a number of years ago, he might have even been, been x-rayed for it, mm -hmm. but he didn't swallow it. Right. And and now, even many years down the road, um, I think, gosh, you know, there's I can't think of any parrot that I've worked with, and I'm, I work with a lot of parrots, right. that has actually ingested a, a foreign body. Again, not saying that it could never happen. You know, and I, there is that person in the workshop. But I think it's pretty rare. That raises their hand, well, my scarlet macaw eats everything. Mm. Okay, and, and that's a possibility, but you know that. You know that that's what your bird does, and you take extra precautions. You don't Maybe you don't give them those things, that, unless you're standing right there and you know they're going to pull out the, the jackpot woohoo thing that's inside mm -hmm. and not want to have anything to do with the paper towel roll. Right. Um, so that's, that's one of the, the most common myths that I hear. Um, another is that oak is poisonous. Well, well, if it, it is, then the leather elves are out of business uh -oh. because a lot of our toys are made with oak. And what it is about the oak that's poisonous is the acorn. And I even have started questioning that. I wouldn't suggest running out and getting acorns for your birds, but I do have pictures of the Brooklyn parrots, which are the mm. feral Quakers in Brooklyn, um, eating acorns. They're foraging on the ground and they're coming up with acorns. So like I said, I'm not suggesting going out and feeding, you know, acorns to your birds, but it's something that I need to do some more research on. But as from I can say very comfortably that oak, the wood is not poisonous. Mm. Um, and a lot of and the other one that comes up as far as wood is concerned is applewood. And I was just recently on the World Parrot Trust uh, website and they're asked the experts section. And one of their experts said, no, you know, apple wood is fine. Um, regular apple wood, crab tree, you know, crab apple wood is fine. Uh, it's just, you know, make sure you wash it off with any browse that you get when you're outside. Um, wash it off, you know, well, like throw it in the shower. It doesn't have to be bleached. It doesn't have to be sterilized. You know, if they, make sure there's not um, bird poop on it from, from wild birds. But you just use your common sense, you know, and, and there are so very, very many lists of toxic plants out there. Well, I know, and that frustrates me because as, as somebody who's not very plant savvy, um, I, I want to know what is safe, you right. know, instead of what is not safe, because then I will just go find that one thing that is safe. And I have a tendency, I, you've heard me talk about it before on here. You know, I always go for the bamboo because I know bamboo is safe. Right. And and there are those 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 comfort woods that we know are very comfortable mm -hmm. and th that we know are safe. So now, thank you very much, Barbara. You've created a new project for me. And um, 
sometime in the next 25 years, I will come up with a list of good for you plants. How's I think that? that? I think that'd be awesome because it's, People like me aren't going to spend the time to try and learn all the toxic ones, but if we had five or six non-toxic ones that we could easily acquire for right. our birds, I would do that. That's I mean, we could even do it regionally too. You know, what's available in the Northeast, what's available in you know the Southwest, and and we can. I will definitely work on something like that because it is true. You, I'd rather know what I can do than what I can't do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a little bit more exciting to go, hey, I'm going to run out and get some of this. And then well, I'm not going to get any of that. I'm not going to get any of that. Well, so, and plus the the toxic lists are like pages long. They're huge. Of Latin names for plants, yeah, which yeah. is so helpful for me. I don't know about And plus you. there's, you know, different species like, you know, and I'm I'm not here to advocate going out and feeding your birds avocado. But, you know, there's different species of avocado. And my understanding is that not all of them are a problem for parrots. But again, you know, not saying go out there and test it on your bird. No. But so I think that's where, you know, we sometimes start to have problems is because it's, it's just we don't know what is okay. You know, right. Just tell us what's okay. Right. Another one that comes up is newsprint is toxic. Um, they've come so very far in the newspaper industry. A lot of the uh, dyes that they're using and the, the inks are soy-based. So they are not toxic. But that is, you know, how many of you have birds that reach down through the grate and pull the the newspaper up. I mean, if that were the case, we'd have parrots dropping left and right. Well, and I've often used newspaper as an enrichment item. Like, you know, if you fold it a certain way, it's really easy to to, uh, shred into strips. Mm -hmm. And I just place them on top of the cage. Right. And they'll pull them through the top. And it's a really inexpensive way for them to have a little fun. The same thing goes for phone books. You know, I've had people look at me in horror when I've said, put a phone book on the top of your bird's cage and thread some of the pages down in. (gasps) But it's ta- again, and this I think this goes back as well to they're not ingesting, mm-hmm. um, you know, the enough. Even if it were toxic, which it's not, they're not ingesting enough to to cause them problems. And you do need to consider, you know, this is something that, that when we're talking about toxins and we're talking about things that aren't safe, you do need to consider the size of your bird, you know, relative to what they may be ingesting. Mm-hmm. But so that's just something to consider. Um, recently I had a, a particular scare with, um, our foraging green. I had a woman come up to me at a, um, at the Long Island Parrot Society and say to me, you know, there's lead in AstroTurf. And so I pulled them off the table. Um, we didn't sell anymore that day. I went home and was sick to my stomach because one of the things we really concentrate on is making things safe, making sure that they're, they're veterinarian approved, the, the, um, the parts that we put into things. And so I went crazy and did a ton of research and found out that if you were to go out and find a 40-year-old field of AstroTurf and cut up a piece, then yes, it would contain lead. Um, The lead from Solutia, which is a company that manufactures AstroTurf at this point, does not have lead in it. But this woman that came, you know, up to me and she emailed me and she was very pleasant about it. and, And I'm glad she brought it to my attention because it did make me do the research. But there is not lead in AstroTurf. That's another one that comes up, you know. And that's an important one, too, because it's not only used um, with parrots, but in the um, raptor community, it's extensively used to help prevent bubble foot on feet and things like that, and and use it with other species as well. Um, But, uh, and, you know, it's been used for years in there. But I could easily see how that could have could have turned into like a big giant campaign against ever using AstroTurf oh, had, had there not been some time spent researching and calling the company and saying, can you tell me exactly what right. the content of your product is? And I, and I think that's important too, to be willing to ask those questions because, you know, even though I'm a manufacturer, I am also a consumer of those products. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I use them for, for my benefit, for my bird and for my friend's birds and things like that. And I want to know what's in them and don't, think because you've bought something um, that it's necessarily safe. Look into it. Consider, you know, what is safe and consider, you know, what's a myth. Look into things. Do a little bit of research. And if it comes down to calling the manufacturer, do it. I mean, they may have a prepared statement that says, here's what the deal is. This is exactly, you know, this issue had come up with the, the AstroTurf company before and they you know, were willing to send me out their their um, manufacturer's data sheets, and they were also willing to send me out a position statement that said this is there is not lead in the astroturf. Mm-hmm. So, well, and I think it's happened with other products too, where someone had an incident like you were mentioning before that was paired 
with the use of a product and that product got blamed for it and next thing you know it spread like wildfire that that product is unsafe for birds and then later on we find out it's not true but the myth persists and you know and that company you know takes a hit because of it even though it wasn't really an accurate um, accusation and I'm sure that myths have led to products being taken off the market that not were not necessarily unsafe yeah Yeah. Um, so before you you kind of go with a myth or really roll with it something that you've heard look into it a little bit more closely Um, here's one of my favorites that stress in any way shape or form is a bad thing it is for me (laughs) I'm just kidding (laughs) well yeah we know that but um, as far any anything that elicits a stress response is not necessarily bad. If you were a veterinarian, all you veterinarians out there that are listening are going, yes, it is. I've had veterinarians tell me in workshops, you know, no, it's horrible. Stress is a bad thing. But there have been studies done that stress actually helps build coping skills. Yeah, I've heard that too. I think when actually when it was, I think it was when I was writing the parrot problem solver, I did a lot of research on stress and, um, and also aggressive behavior. And um, it's it's not so much about the short term bursts of stress. You know, those those are where you learn your coping skills. But it's that long term, uh, in you know, sort of inescapable stress right. that just wears you down and causes illness and and things like that. Or right. Whatever. And when I when I'm saying you know stress is okay, I'm not saying you want to stress your bird out on a daily basis. Your parrot shouldn't be that stressed. It should be, but it's okay if those little stressors happen every now and then. Um, it's okay for, for them to get that little rush every, you know, it's all right. And people, oh no, my bird, I can't do that. It's, it's really stress, you know, causing. Well, first of all, we, we need to talk about what are you seeing? Mm-hmm. What is the stress? Um, what are you calling the stress? And, and is it all right? And so just, you know, be aware, you know your bird better than anyone else. And, and little doses of stress are okay. Yeah, I think of like, um, you know, for me, I've got Puddin' and my dog Whalen and trying to let them get to know one another safely through the mm-hmm. through the cage. But, but um, you know, how you kind of gauge how close is too close, you right. know, and how close is enough that they get to check each other out. They may not be totally, you know, running up to each other and going, oh, you look like fun. But they get to see each other and get comfortable with each other. Um, which may be in, involve the slightest level mm-hmm. of, of stress going on there. And, and, and honestly, that speaks to, you know, desensitization. When you're doing any kind of desensitization process, there is that initial stress response, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you're going to get that no matter what. You know, if it's across the room, there's still going to be that, even if it's just momentary, there's going to be that little little stress response. So stress is okay. I'm not saying stress them out on a, on a regular basis, but, but it is all right um, for it to occur sometimes. Um, another one of my favorite myths is that captive bred birds are totally different animals from their wild cousins. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's a, it's a completely different thing. And yes, we have bred some, um, some of the traits into and out of different species uh, in captivity, but it goes back to the the behaviors that these birds are exhibiting in the wild you know what in their setting what are they exhibiting and trying to create a situation where you're eliciting those same kind of behaviors and so you can't say well you know oh no 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 my bird could never do that or would never do that because he was captive bred it it, it really speaks to the fact that you've got you've got this this animal that is genetically the same as an animal out in the wild. And you just need to be aware of that when you're offering enrichment for them. So, and the last one that, that I want to talk about is um, toys designed for specific species. I, when I first started in the business, I used to say, oh, this is an African gray toy, or this is a cockatoo toy. And I think we talk about designing, you know, forest species or looking at natural histories of specific birds, of specific species, but you do need to bring it down to your bird in particular. What works for your bird? I had a customer that used to buy one of the smallest toys we make for their black palm cockatoo. <laughs> and I'd be like, you know, she bought them 36 at a time. <laughs> but um, in her situation, her black palm had um, a beak injury, and that was the only toy that they would play with. So normally, you, you, I would never say that this tiny toy was a black palm cockatoo toy, but that's what it ended up being. And with any enrichment, saying that it's a specific 
you know, for this, any, any cockatoo will love this. Any Amazon will love this. You just need to be careful of those kind of statements and, and knowing your bird and being able to go. And, you know, I've definitely come to the conclusion that as bird people, everybody's pretty touchy feely. You need to, you know, see it, smell it, look at it, make sure it, it smells fresh. It doesn't, you know, that it, it, it feels the right way and, and being able to, you really kind of interact with devices that you, in enrichment opportunities that you give your bird. And so needing to, to be able to do that hands-on or at least have a really good idea what you're getting um, for your bird and knowing that it will work for your bird in particular uh, is really important. So, you know, don't get get all excited about this is a blah blah toy you know this is a you know designed specifically for cockatoos so that's just kind of something to think about cool well like i said it seems like there are a lot of myths and missing misconceptions oh she, i she finally messed it up <laughs> that's the first time i messed up that <sighs> word yeah i must be getting tired here i don't know what's <laughs> up Anyway, um, but yeah, there's a lot we could go we could go on and on and on about. So we might have to do another one of these episodes sometime down nice. the road. So let us know if you want to hear Myths and Misconceptions, <laughs> Volume Two. Yeah, that's right. All right. So should we move on to upcoming events? We should. All right. Take it away. Well, we're going to take some time off. Sure, we are. Um, no, well, in January. Um, the 23rd to the 25th is Parrot Festival in Houston, Texas. It's hosted by um, the National Parrot Rescue and Preservation Foundation. It's a three-day event. They have great lecturers and a vendor's room. It's a great um, opportunity to meet with other parrot people. And I'll have a vendor booth there so you can stop by and say hello. And then on February 21st, Barbara and I will be doing a day-long seminar that's uh, hosted by the Greater Cincinnati Bird Club. You can go to their website at gcbcclub.org, and I'm not going to say that five times fast. Uh, February 22nd, I'm doing an enrichment workshop um, with Cleveland Peace. And then February 24th to 28th is the International Association of Avian Trainers and Educators Annual Conference, also in Cincinnati, Ohio. And both Robin and I will be there, and you can visit iwate.org for more information. And then March 14th, I'll be doing a parrot behavior and training workshop in Dallas, Texas. And more information can be found at bird-haven.org. And then March 28th, I will be in at the Featherlust Farm Bird Store in Old Saybrook, Connecticut. And I'll be doing a flight training seminar. You can go to featherlustfarm.com for more info. April 18th and 19th, I'll be in Ontario, Canada with Dr. Susan Friedman doing a parrot behavior and training workshop. And you can find more information at parrotworkshops.org. And then coming up in May, I'll be in Europe, May 9th and 10th in Finland. And then May 16th and 17th in France. And then May 23rd and 24th in Portugal. And more information will be available on all those events uh, on my website at goodbirdinc.com. And then May 29th through the 30th, we'll be doing the Best Parrot Conference in Edison, New Jersey. Uh, Barbara and myself, Dr. Susan Friedman, and Joanna Eccles from World Parrot Trust. And Best stands for Behavior, Enrichment, Science, and Training. And then looking ahead to October of 2009, October 24th through the 31st, I'm setting sail on the 09 Parrot Lovers Cruise. This is a cruise with some speakers, myself, Dr. Joseph Morrissey, uh, Laura Joseph, um, and a bunch of parrot people having a great time visiting some wonderful places like Panama, Cozumel, and Costa Rica. You can check that out at baldman, B-A-L-D-M-A-N, travel.com. And if you want to check out our websites, you can go to goodbirdinc.com and theleatherelves.com. Uh, one of the recommended resources I, I've mentioned in the past is um, UC Davis has a great toxic plant list. And of course, we I will be coming out with the uh, non-toxic plant list right. um, sometime soon. And soon is such a relative term. <laughs> um, the enrichment tip of the week, always vary your enrichment presentation. And remember that moderation is the key to keeping your parrot interested in the enrichment opportunities that you're offering. And for my training tip of the week, while we all love a good parrot story, make sure those anecdotes about parrot behavior are based in science. Folklore about parrot behavior can be charismatic, but stick to your positive reinforcement training strategies to be sure you are on the right track. Now, we also have uh, had a request out there for people to send in their questions that they might have, and those who submit and get chosen for the podcast get a free digital download of Good Bird Magazine. And this week, our winner is Virginia... And her question is, why does my Goffin Cockatoo Lulu try to put beads 
buttons and some food under her wing. Hmm. Hmm, that's a curious behavior, Very isn't good question, it? Virginia. I well, think it's a myth. I don't think it really happened. <laughs> it never really happened. It's just a story. No, it did happen. And I've actually seen it before, too. And in fact, um, I've definitely seen it in another Goffin's cockatoo. And that particular bird would take um, uh, her pellets and roll them down her back as well as, as a bead. And she, I uh, remember one time she was playing with her owner's uh, string from her, the hood on her sweatshirt, and she kept tucking that under there, too. Um, but what most people describe that behavior as is called anting, A-N-T-I-N-G. And where it comes from is some behavior that's been observed with uh, um, birds out in the wild, not with parrots, but things like corvids, crows, and ravens, have been seen um, standing over a line, a little trail of ants, taking an ant, squishing it in their beak and, and rubbing it against their feathers. And I re recall one time when I was uh, working on Disney's Discovery Island, we used to have to take a boat over to the island, and we'd wait for everyone to arrive before we hopped on a little, a little float boat to get over there. And we were watching some crows who were um, standing in a pile of crushed chlorine tablets that were used for the water park that had uh, kind of spilled and they were doing the same thing with the chlorine pellets, hmm. the little bits. They were rubbing them against their wings. So I would guess that that's what your Goffin's cockatoo is doing. The problem is, is that nobody has a great explanation as to why this behavior occurs. And again, there really isn't any science as far as the parrots are concerned as to why, why it's being done. Right? It hasn't really been observed with parrots that often. Yeah, you know, but definitely it is something that... I've certainly seen mm -hmm. um, with another parrot and, and heard about with other people's parrots as well. So it is it is a very different looking behavior. So it does grab your attention, you know, and makes makes you go, what the heck is my bird doing? So it's a great question. And Virginia, you may want to, you know, do a little bit of research and, and look up anting and, and see if you can come up with any more resources on, on that. And, and if you do, please send them in to us. Um, we'd yeah. like to know more. Yeah, we'd be happy to share them with everybody else out there. So if you have a question, feel free to go to uh, goodbirdinc.com and there's a place to submit your question right on the homepage there. Uh, and we'll send Fiona her no, free... Virginia. Oh, <gasps> Virginia this time. It was Fiona last time. Oh, so we'll send Virginia her free digital download ASAP. All right. And without that, I think we're out of time. We are out of time. So if you have suggestions or questions, you can contact us at robin at petliferadio.com or barbara at petliferadio.com. And if you'd like transcripts of this show, please visit www.petliferadio.com. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Join us every week on Wings and Things and get a bird's eye view of everything there is to know about pet birds and how to make your frequent flyer a happy camper. Wings and Things, only on PetLifeRadio.com.